Welcome to Fixated, the Fixed Income Podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Moran, Editorial Director of Fixed Income News Australia. Join me every week as I talk about the latest news, views and education in fixed income investment. I'll be joined by industry experts from Australia and across the globe. Welcome. Today we have Victor Rodriguez, who is Head of Fixed Income at CIP Asset Management. Good morning, Victor. Good morning, Liz. Thanks for having us on your um, on your show. Uh, delighted to have you here. Now, Victor, I thought we'd start, and we don't usually do this, but CIP um, Asset Management isn't a name many of our listeners will be familiar with, and you are a challenger company. Perhaps can you give us a little bit of background about the company and what you do? Sure, of course. Um, so CIP Asset Management is, is part of the funds management division at Challenger, effectively a wholly owned boutique of the wider Challenger group, as you say. Um, I dare say CIP Asset Management might well be one of the largest, most established Australian investment management business your listeners have never heard of. Uh, we, in the fixed income team alone, manage over $16 billion of credit investments uh, and have been doing that for over 15 years, since 2005, um, and have grown from just over $9 billion five years ago. We formally operated under the Challenger banner, managing money exclusively for institutional clients, but it was only last year that we rebranded to be named CIP Asset Management, and that was very much with a view to offer our capabilities to a much wider audience beyond those institutional investors, so to high net worth and retail participants. Um, the team is uh, comprises 25 dedicated investment professionals based both in Oz, New Zealand, and in the UK, um, and supported by the wider risk management, legal, and compliance, IT, and operational support of the wider group that number in the hundreds, of course. We manage a very diverse range of investments, ranging from public traded corporate bonds in both domestic and overseas markets, through to private lending activities that include commercial real estate lending, uh, acquisition finance and other corporate lending, and we're a very, very uh, large investor for our clients in the securitisation markets. So, Victor, I heard on the grapevine that um, CIP Asset Management was actually awarded a mandate to um, help support small business with a $2 billion fund. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. So, in late 2019, just before the, uh, the pandemic broke, uh, the government was looking to support small businesses. Banks were starting to pull back their their lending activities to that space. Uh, and Frydenberg and the government came out with an initiative called the Australian Business Securitisation Fund, a $2 billion investment um, that basically uh, involved supporting uh, lending platforms to, not, to small businesses in Australia. The important aspect of that was that they needed expertise to support them in those lending activities with the government standing there as a lender, uh, and they chose CIP Asset Management, given our long pedigree in the securitisation space, to support that initiative. Effectively, it represented providing warehouse facilities, in some cases sitting alongside the banks indeed, um, but supporting um, the, the lending activities of those small businesses. And, and, and your listeners may be familiar with some of those small lending platforms like Prosper, for example, as, as one of those non-bank lenders in that space. I think that's a, a fantastic um, attribution to the capability of your business. Can you tell us a little bit about what your t- you and your team are interested in at the moment? What are you looking at and where do you see value in the market? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, everyone's asking that question across uh, all types of asset classes right now. The pandemic response, you know, was pretty much a king tide of monetary and fiscal stimulus <clears throat> unleashed on markets. That combined response has driven valuations across both our space, fixed income and equities, and more broadly to what most people agree are pretty elevated levels. That's not a prediction, by the way, that markets have peaked necessarily. We're not in the business as a team as investors of trying to predict short-term market moves like that. But it does beg the question, what happens when that policy stimulus starts to reverse? Um, there's certainly, for example, a risk that equity and government bond valuations uh, will both decline. And so that correlation nexus gets broken that, that many investors have sought comfort in. So what to do in that, in that environment? And for us, there are still some pockets of what we deem relative value within our credit markets. I touched on just the breadth of what we cover in terms of markets. And, you know, we think, for example, the private debt and the illiquidity premiums available in that private debt space are still quite attractive. And when we talk about illiquidity premiums, what effectively we mean are for the same level of credit risk, but for bilateral or less liquid loans, what's the additional premium that you can get? by investing in those private debt markets. And, and, and we're seeing uh, illiquidity premiums of, on average, about 2%, which when interest rates are at zero, getting that additional premium over what are stretched public markets does look quite attractive. Um, the other point that we sort of highlight, I think, um, in terms of what we're thinking about now is, you know, again, given the backdrop I just described, you know, where, where can we hide right now? You know, where can we hide without having to forego all returns, i.e. not just sit in cash. Um, and, and private debt is an example of that. But importantly, private debt and other investments that we're participating in, we've got a strong focus on short-dated maturities, short-dated credit effectively, which has less exposure to potential volatility in markets, uh, but is still able to extract some level of yield for income-hungry investors. So when you say short dated, everyone's got a different view of short dated. What's your view of short dated? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. It depends on the portfolio we we manage. But some of those warehouse facilities, for example, that I described that we perform and we invest in, not just for the uh, Australian Office of Financial Management, the government, but for other institutional clients. Uh, most of those warehouse facilities have a one year tenor, sometimes as long as two years. Commercial real estate loans tend to be around the two to four year mark, and corporate loans tend to be in that three to four, three to five year mark. Most of the public investments we're investing in um, are, tend to be relatively short dated as well, again, between two and four years. And most of the portfolios we run have an average maturity of somewhere between, again, two to three years. So relatively short dated when spreads, or if spreads, I should say, do widen and the mark to market hits that investors may experience as well. Clearly, the shorter dated your portfolio, the less vulnerability you have to those kind of moves. It certainly sounds like your team um, are either erring on the side of caution or have a belief that inflation is going to rise uh, and, and so affect bond yields. Would that be fair? 
I don't think we've got an explicit view on inflation. I think we just acknowledge that valuations are stretched. It does feel like it's late cycle. Of course, this could run for some time. And the breadth of the platform we run means we're able to at least identify pockets of relative value. Is anything in an absolute sense as attractive as it was three years ago? Absolutely not. But, um, but in terms of relative value in the market, that's where our expertise comes in. And like I said, we, we see some value in private debt without question. We see some value in keeping maturity short, more from the potential risks that are out there rather than a prediction. It could be that we have in the next 10 years a Japan-style scenario. I wouldn't rule that out. Is it a base case? Not necessarily, but you wouldn't rule that out. But clearly the risks are heightened without question and valuations as stretched as they are makes investors and, and, and potential uh, returns more vulnerable to those risks going forward. Do you see any value in like floating rate note securities? And I, I imagine some of the warehouse stuff is floating rate, but, um, you know, in terms of bond, corporate bonds and things as well? Almost all the private debt we invest in is floating rate in nature. And yes, there's definitely a bias towards public market floating rate debt. Uh, importantly, uh, and we'll get We'll talk a little bit about a couple of the, the funds that we're now uh, showcasing to retail and wholesale investors. But the, we don't, as, an, as a team, make any directional uh, bets or speculate on interest rates or, or currencies for that matter. And we hedge even fixed rate bonds back to floating rates such that we're looking to remove uh, the the risks and, and you know, the potential benefits. If, if, if interest rates go negative, then you don't mind holding some duration but from here. But, but um, you know, we, we're, that's not an area we, we, we invest in and it's, our focus is very much on floating rate, both in individual investments and certainly at the portfolio level. Okay, well, that's sort of a nice segue into talking about the two funds that you have. And I know one, um, the Credit Income Fund, is open to all investors and it does contain private debt. Can you talk a little bit about what's invested there and uh, what its performance has been? Just give us an overview of the fund. That would be great. Absolutely, Lee. So the, the, the CPAN Credit Income Fund is a fund that we launched back in uh, 2017, and we believe represents a truly innovative, unique strategy in the Australian marketplace. Um, initially, it was showcased <coughs> for institutional investors, but as you say, um, last year we launched um, uh, both a wholesale and a retail share class, and we're opening that more widely. And it's unique simply because it provides access to both public and private debt markets in the one portfolio, allowing BIP Asset Management and the team to rotate to where we see best value over the cycle. <clears throat> the returns have been very attractive. The fund targets a bank bill plus 3% net of fee return. Uh, and indeed, over the last 12 months, has returned uh, 6.8% uh, and an annualised return of 4.8% since inception or 3.7% uh, over bank bills since inception. Now, the last 12 months, of course, has seen a very strong rally in markets. So investors shouldn't be seeing that close to 7% return as something that necessarily you can expect going forward. Um, the risk profile of the fund is very conservative. So the fund must at all times uh, have an average investment grade rating of, in the portfolio, so relatively high quality, um, quite risk remote in terms of default risk. 
Uh, and like I said earlier, relatively short average uh, maturities and, and duration um, that, um, that protect in the case of uh, significant market volatility. In terms of what we've been doing, and the other point to highlight, sorry, is, is about liquidity. And, and we really think this is a very, very important point. Because we're blending both public and private debt, clearly the fund cannot be daily liquid. And in fact, only offers monthly liquidity, but with a 10% fund level gate. So that means that if we were to get across the whole fund, more than 10% redemptions in any one month, then any future, uh, any excess redemptions, we as a manager have the right to defer until the following month. And so investors can redeem for idiosyncratic reasons, you know, if you just need the funds. But in the case of mass redemption, you know, as, as we've seen in other funds, for example, back in March of 2020, and we've seen periods of, then we're protecting investors uh, because clearly with a roughly one-third allocation to private debt, it's not responsible of us to try and be offering that, uh, that daily liquidity. The, the final point I'd make on that, though, is that investors should think of that as a strength, not a disadvantage. It's been an interesting dynamic having conversations with retail investors recently because 2020 was, again, a perfect example where in March and April of last year, we were buyers in the fund of risk. And there were some incredible opportunities, even for, for example, a, a COVID remote name like Ventia, you know, solid infrastructure name was trading or we bought at 90 cents in the dollar. Uh, so, you know, trading almost like equity in a sense, uh, even though there was no concern there, simply because there were other participants in the market who needed to raise some liquidity, whereas we were in a position of strength because our liability profile was such was much more secure. It's certainly worth pointing that out, you know, the full sellers in the market, you know, they have to meet their redemptions and so they have to take a price, yeah. the market price of assets, um, whatever they can get away with. Um, and if you're not, if you don't offer that, and of course private debt is, it is in a liquid market and you do get paid for that. Um, yeah, that's that's a really um, good point. Can you just talk a little bit more about what you invest in in that fund? Because you were saying about a third of it is private debt. And I imagine um, even though it's private debt, it's by you're lending to some pretty well-known names in, in that portfolio as well. Yes, there's, oh, there's a very strong bias, for example, to healthcare in the, the corporate loan space. Um, we, as an investment team, have very much a focus on steering away from cyclical industries. Um, and to the extent that something might exhibit some cyclicality, then the leverage needs to be very low. We've got an extraordinary track record dating back to 2005 um, that, uh, that has basically resulted from that investment philosophy about safety first uh, when it comes to corporate lending. Uh, importantly, though, you touched on the, the, the one-third private debt. So after the, um, after the uh, March period last year, actually private debt, uh, went down quite substantially through maturities. We looked to deploy money into public markets and private debt went down to as low as 20% uh, because public markets were so attractive in April, May, June last year and they were where the opportunities lay. Uh, and so we were able to move. We're not going to go from zero to 100, but we're able to allocate between the asset classes. And historically, we've tended to find that in when markets are more distressed, 
public markets tend to underperform, that illiquidity premium I mentioned starts to compress and we move into public markets as a general rule. And periods like we are in right now are periods where we're looking to extend the allocation to private debt because that illiquidity premium starts to widen as public markets look stretched. Uh, we've got a, a smattering of names in the in the corporate bond market as well, of course, in the public corporate bond market, and we're invested in securitisation uh, markets as well. Very much a focus there on investment grade securitisation, so single A, triple B type names. Um, that market too, particularly in public space, has rallied quite appreciably. There's very, very strong demand in that space, albeit the triple A part of the market is starting to show some signs of weakness at the moment, uh, but very early days. But nevertheless, there's still what we describe as a complexity premium available from investing in securitised markets versus more uh, plain vanilla corporate bond markets, if you will. It's certainly a less liquid market as well, uh, the securitisation market, but it has had government support during the GFC and and COVID, which is really encouraging for that market. Um, RMBS, as an example, is one of the sectors I've favoured for quite a while. I, I imagine you're invested in RMBS as well. Absolutely, yes. Part, part of the uh, the ABS market, a large chunk of the ABS market is RMBS, and we definitely have exposure there. Although I, I, I would point out that, um, you know, government support has been <laughs> across the board, right? So on, in the corporate space, the banks have been enormous beneficiaries of government support. It'll be interesting to see we are a bit more conservative in our exposure to financials. Partly that is because we like securitisation, which is a bit of a proxy, of course, but we also think there's likely to be a fair amount of supply in financials going forward. We've seen the banks clearly benefit from things like the uh, the, the TFF, um, which uh, you know they, they will no longer. So that kind of supply makes us a bit more cautious on financials, and we've got a very, very low weight there. Whereas your, uh, you know, your more standard um, Australian credit fund almost by default, um, to the extent it's investing in public markets, needs to have a material exposure to financials. Oh, that's great. Let's talk about your other uh, multi-sector private lending fund, and that's the um, higher risk fund with a higher minimum investment. It is. Um, the other, the credit income fund, I think it's a $10,000 minimum for retail investors. That's correct. That's right. But the multi-sector private lending, it's 100000 Can you talk a little bit about that? I think I think it's really interesting. People are looking for higher yield at this point in the cycle. And, um, yes, if you can talk a little bit about that, that would be great, Victor. Of course. Lee. So so the multi-sector private lending fund was launched in uh, in February last year. So some would say incredibly good timing. Some would say incredibly bad timing. But it importantly represents uh, a capability that we've been managing for many, many years for institutional clients um, in, in segregated mandates. Uh, we launched a wholesale share class in May of this year only, and the fund is now 306 million. Um, so not quite as large as the credit income fund, but uh, but growing very strongly in a very short space of time. The fund targets cash plus five after fees, um, and the wholesale fee there is 75 basis points. But importantly, all the upfront fees that are earned as the lender go to our clients. Um, so the only fee that clients are paying, there are no performance fees, there are no transaction fees. Um, as to say, it's really just the management fee that is charged. Um, effectively, this fund is looking to um, offer excess returns above other high-yield 
more liquid strategies of 1% to 2%. And as the name suggests, um, this fund is made up almost entirely of uh, private debt um, investments across um, corporate lending, commercial real estate lending, and, and those um, securitisation warehouses I spoke about. Um, there is some opportunity still in this fund, though, to invest in some, uh, let's say, slightly more liquid or syndicated high-yield investments. Um, and, and, and the fund did take advantage of that opportunity late last year as well. The fund has returned 7.85% uh, above bank bills over the last 12 months uh, and 6.5% over, um, over that same bank bill index since inception. Again, a very strong period for markets and investors should be seeing more that that cash plus five type hurdle after fees is the, is the return that we feel is sustainable over the long run and consistent with the risk profile of the fund. The risk profile um, is, as you rightly say, Liz, uh, somewhat riskier um, in two senses uh, versus the credit income fund. One, it's less liquid, so it doesn't offer monthly liquidity. It offers, and again, an example of the innovative um, approach we take to providing investor solutions. This is quarterly liquidity on a best endeavours basis. So, you know, the, the, as we always say in private debt, the best form of liquidity is a maturity. Um, and so as, as redemptions come through, we get the maturity. There's a, again, like I said, a small part of the portfolio that has a bit more liquidity, but um, most of it, you're looking for those maturities. And so we've been very upfront with clients um, that, you know, you, you need to be uh, investing for the long term for this fund as well. The second aspect of that uh, additional risk comes from the credit risk itself. So the average rating of the of the fund will be something like low double B, high single B. Um, so you know non investment grade, and that's why I sort of mentioned you know a true comp is really against other liquid high yield bond funds, for example, that you see in in, in offshore markets, getting that additional liquidity premium. And, and with less volatility, importantly, as well, in terms of uh, pricing. Victor, how many securities are in the fund? In the multi-sector, we've got about 50 different investments. Um, so, And that's probably what we target, about 2% on average. Some obviously will be higher convictions and other exposures. Uh, and it, but it really important, it's a good question in terms of diversification, because really both of these funds offer investors diversification in a number of different ways. So, for example, you know, very few of the names in either of these funds you will find in the ASX. You know, many of these are unlisted issuers, for example, unlisted companies or, or you know, or, or warehouses. Secondly, uh, you've got, um, you know, very little correlation with what you'd find in the public bond markets when it comes to private debt, at least. You know, many of these issuers are issuers who've chosen to access private debt markets instead of public, not in addition to. So you're getting diversification in that sense. But we still feel that we want to be able to demonstrate the conviction we have in different investments, particularly given that more defensive approach um, as investors. Um, and so therefore, you know, we think that that's the right number on average of exposures. The credit income fund is closer to 100. Um, so more diversification, one, because you've got access to public markets, but two, because it is um, a more defensive offering more generally, so introducing a bit more diversification makes sense. Just in terms of the due diligence you do on the investments before you decide to invest, can you talk a little bit about that and maybe um, some of the specialists in your team and 
Um, you know, are they, are they repeat clients? I mean, you've been going for such a long time now, you know, 20, 15, 20 years with Challenger. I imagine there's repeat clients. Geez, I could, uh, I've got to find a way to answer this question succinctly. <laughs> um, so, like, I mean, you know, there's a number of things to call out, but I'll just pick out a couple in, in, in the time that we have. Firstly, when it comes to the due diligence, we have a structure that is unique in the Australian marketplace because in addition to the team that I have the good fortune to lead of, of investment, fixed income investment professionals, there is also an independent credit risk function that sits at challenger group level. And so every time we look at a private debt transaction, my team will prepare a paper that needs to pre be presented to the investment committee for that particular client. But in addition, that credit risk function will present their own paper. Now that work is collaborative, but essentially when I say to you that the fund has an average double B minus, double B rated um, you know, investment, most of those, these deals are not rated by S&P or Moody's. But they are rated by an independent credit risk function. And I'm not questioning, of course, I've never questioned the integrity of my team, but you can understand maybe there's a conflict there if I'm the one designating the rating on an investment as opposed to that independent function. So that's a really, really important element of, of the due, due diligence, but one, one that I'd call out, one of many, but one that I'd call out as, as really reflective of the strong risk culture and the thoroughness of our DD. A, a, a deal in terms of uh, uh, when we're looking at a deal, we bring to the table a huge amount of experience. You know, most of my team um, have been, on average, uh, using the market over a decade, um, and some of those senior leaders, in fact, have been with the firm for well over a decade, investing, like I said, in those markets um, over all of that period. And what that longevity brings with it is very, very deep relationships in the marketplace. So, you know, when you've got a private equity sponsor that's looking to um, uh, find a lender, and ideally they'd prefer to in, in deal with just one lender as opposed to syndicate a deal with the expenses and the complications that come with that, we literally get first call on just about all of those deals. It goes to that length of experience and the, the depth of those relationships, but it also goes to the scale that we bring to the table. So it's not uncommon for us to do a 200 $250 million loan uh, with a particular borrower on the corporate side, um, on, 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 on the commercial real estate side. And investors, of course, the credit income fund or the multi-sector private lending fund is not lending $250 million, but is, is able to participate in that loan um, through our sort of robust governance and allocation policy that we have and therefore gain access to those institutional grade investments in the marketplace. That if we didn't have the scale if we didn't have the $16 billion in funds under management, we wouldn't be able to uh, to showcase for our investors. That's really interesting, Victor. It just goes to the strength of your business, the size and the, the length of time you've been operating. Um, and I'm sure you have some very well-known large clients, superannuation funds, insurers, that, that sort of thing, that are big investors. Absolutely. Um, look, I just want to thank you very much for your time today and your insights, and I'm sure our our listeners will be keen to um, have a closer look at the two funds and uh, what they've invested in, which you've covered really well. Um, but thank you very much for your time today. No worries. Thanks again for having me. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us this week on Fixated, the fixed income podcast. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode and don't forget to join us again next week. Still hungry for more fixed income news, views and education? Then visit fixedincomenews.com.au and don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter to have the latest news delivered right to your inbox. Thanks again for joining us. I'm Elizabeth Moran and we'll see you next week on Fixated, the fixed income podcast.